Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined as always by my colleague Kelly Vlahos from the Quincy Institute. Today we will be talking to James Carden about the war in Ukraine and the need for negotiations. First, we turn to another corner of the world where the U.S. and Iran appear to be on collision course once again. The Biden administration has sent several thousand additional sailors and marines to the Persian Gulf. In addition to this increase in numbers, the sailors and marines are being prepared for a mission where they would be placed on commercial shipping vessels to guard them against being seized by Iranian forces. According to a report in the Washington Post, one U.S. official says that the policy decision has pretty much been made. There has been a back and forth of tanker seizures in the last few years since the U.S. resumed its economic war against Iran by trying to block its oil exports. Part of that effort includes seizing Iranian oil shipments. Iranian tanker seizures are some of the predictable consequences of that policy. As Trita Parsi pointed out in a recent piece for Irresponsible Statecraft, Trump's maximum pressure strategy is Biden's. If we really wanted to stop Iran from seizing tankers, it seems to me then the U.S. needs to stop trying to strangle Iranian oil exports, uh, but that doesn't seem to be on the table. So we're now we're getting uh, possible military escalation. Putting sailors and marines on commercial ships in the Persian Gulf is more than the U.S. did even during the so-called tanker war at the tail end of the Iran-Iraq war, as Paul Pillar noted in his recent article, uh, also at Responsible Statecraft. And it puts U.S. forces at greater risk over something that should be the responsibility of other governments, including those states in the Persian Gulf whose ships are being threatened, or whose shipping is being threatened. Uh, even if it doesn't lead to an incident where U.S. personnel are captured or killed, this is the wrong thing for the U.S. to be doing. The U.S. military footprint in the Middle East is already too large and getting larger, and we risk getting embroiled in yet another conflict at a time when we can ill afford it. Biden is tying U.S. fortunes more closely to Persian Gulf clients when he should be keeping them at arm's length. And that bodes ill for the future. Taken together with the administration's apparent eagerness to strike a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia at our expense, it shows how Biden's so-called back-to-basics approach is deepening U.S. involvement in the Middle East for no good reason. So what do you think, Kelly? What is Biden thinking here? Why is he doing it? And where is Congress? <laughs> well, I'd like to hone in on something that you had said about the, uh, the, U- the U.S. pushing for this Saudi Israel normalization agreement, how that plays into the equation. And, and Trita had highlighted that for the story he wrote. And, and, and I, I don't think too many people are talking about it. And I think it's important. First of all, this Abraham Accord or Abraham Accords, this normalization tract that the United States is on was started in the Trump administration under um, Jared Kushner, who was a senior advisor to President Trump and his son-in-law during that period. And it's a, a series of deals between the U.S., I mean, between Israel and a number of Arab countries um, that, that strike at the heart of um, normalizing relations, but also uh, codifying and um, beginning new um, travel agreements, trade agreements, other associations that had not been there before, all in this sort of effort, and this is the you know this is the explanation of the administration to um, engage in in peace in the region between Israel and its neighbors. A lot of these so far the agreements, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Dan. Include um, is it Oman, Morocco? Uh, not, not Oman. Uh, Morocco, UAE, Bahrain, and Sudan, I think, uh, are the only ones that have actually signed on. Yeah, Correct. And so Saudi Arabia would be the big feather in the cap. If they could get Saudi Arabia to agree to normalization with Israel, it would probably lead to many more of these Arab nations falling into place. 
Saudi Arabia is trying to play the United States as a fiddle because they know the U.S. wants this badly. And in recent weeks, we've learned that they are asking for a number of things in exchange for their agreement to normalize relations with Israel. And that would include a new uh, security pact between an, an alliance between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, our support of their civil, uh, a civilian and nuclear power um, ability, capability in Saudi Arabia, as well as new and sophisticated arms that we would provide. Right now, we provide our most sophisticated weaponry to Israel. Saudi wants to be cut in on that. So these are are, are are huge asks, and we still do not know if Biden will assent to them. So Trita has pointed out that in an effort to, to prove to Saudi Arabia that it has its back in the region, that it, it will engage in, in a certain amount of security guarantees, that it's going to put these U.S. Marines on commercial vessels to thwart these oil tanker seizures by Iran. So it's a signaling, in essence, to Saudi that we do have their back, that we will provide security, that we're not going anywhere, uh, that our, our military is still committed to the security of the region. What makes me so angry about this is that it's putting U.S. troops in harm's way so that Biden can signal to Saudi Arabia that it got it has its back, plus all the other problematic aspects of this, as you pointed out, that it actually risks a hot war with Iran. I find all of this geopolitical jockeying and uh, performative action by the Biden administration very troubling when it is, as you pointed out, entrenched in a, a real land war or at least providing for one in Ukraine, always on the verge of getting into one directly in Eastern Europe, and all of the shenanigans that have been going on with China over Taiwan. Why are we risking yet another security front? Is there anybody in the Biden administration that's actually paying attention to the sleepwalking that we're doing in a war over there? You know, and I, I'm afraid I don't, I don't think that they are paying attention to it, or they don't. They're not taking that risk seriously enough. Uh, and we, I mean, we've had back and forth incidents with our troops in Syria and Iraq uh, for many years now, uh, where uh, militias, either backed by or, or associated with Iran, uh, have been launching attacks on U.S. bases or bases where U.S. troops are stationed. Uh, and and then the U.S. will strike back at their bases, and and it goes back and forth. And fortunately, there haven't been many uh, injuries or fatalities in in these uh, skirmishes, but there there have been a few. Uh, I believe one contractor was killed in Syria as a result of these back and forth attacks. And so, what what they're essentially proposing to do is is to replicate that dynamic uh, on at sea uh, in the Persian Gulf, where uh, the the IRGC actually has a lot more assets that it can draw on uh, to harass ships, to to launch missiles at ships. Uh, so if you know, if you want to start uh, clashing with them, or if you're if you're willing to risk clashing with them, uh, you're, you're looking at a possibly really dangerous incident. And I thought it was very interesting what Paul Pillar wrote in his piece about this, uh, noting that this is more 
confrontational than even what we did during the tanker war, where we're we're putting our guys right on the front line uh, to to stop the attacks on these ships. Uh, even when the U.S. was willing to get into uh, the middle of the Iran-Iraq war to some extent, we weren't prepared to do that. And so uh, what doesn't make any sense to me about this is what what is the compelling interest here uh, that would justify putting our people at risk? Uh, why is it that placating the Saudis and the UAE over harassment of shipping uh, rises to this level? It, it doesn't It doesn't make any sense at all unless you assume that our policies in the region exists only to serve them. And and unfortunately, that's the, that's the way it seemed to work in practice. That if, if they complain about something, we rush to, to satisfy them. Uh, if, if, you know, the Houthis shoot at Abu Dhabi, we rush forces to the UAE to, to help protect them. Because, God forbid, they should actually have to live with the consequences of their actions. And so it's, you know, it's, it's this very frustrating pattern that we've seen over the last two and a half years under Biden and even before that under Trump, where where our military has put it, essentially put at their disposal uh, when there don't seem to be any discernible U.S. interests at stake. And I, I asked about Congress, and, I, and I'm, I'm still wondering where Congress is in all of this, because there, there doesn't seem to be any actual authority yeah. to engage in military action against Iranian ships in the Persian Gulf. And and Congress should be involved in this because this is this is something where those forces, the, those Marines and sailors, could very well end up in hostilities very quickly, and they have no business being there. And Congress didn't vote to send them there, and Congress ought to step up and and say that there is no authorization for this, uh, or either that or or to authorize it if if they genuinely believe that this is worth doing, then they ought to actually put their votes behind it and put their names on the line instead of just carping from the sidelines as they like to do. And so, you know, Cong- Congress needs to do its job. Uh, well, what a concept. Uh, and, and they need to do the same thing about our presence in Syria as well, which to this day, after nine years, is still illegal, unauthorized, uh, and, and shouldn't continue. But uh, where we're looking at, at a, the further expansion of these sorts of uh, very sketchy troop deployments that don't serve the national interest. I, I wonder too what the authorization was, and I, I I feel like I fell on the down on the job over the weekend because this this is a question I don't think anybody's been asking, you know. And after I get off this podcast, I think I'm going to start shooting off some emails because I don't feel like that's answered. Now, will they just throw out throw in there? Oh, this is under the 2002. Authorization for the use of uh, military force? Uh, probably not. Maybe 2001. Not sure. Is there some other um, uh, agreement or um, security pact that we have to um, protect the, the Strait of Hormuz and, and shipping in the region? And it, this might be part of some something we have pledged to do, or I, I have no idea what authorization this runs under. But this also raises, to my mind, uh, a, a coming debate that you and I should you know, probably be very mindful of. Uh, the House 
wants to overturn the, the 2002 and 1991 authorizations for the use of military force. Why they haven't done it already is beyond me. The Senate already voted for it. But in, in order to get Republicans on board, apparently, they're starting a whole new process uh, with Ken Buck and another member of Congress to come up with a plan to repeal those two and replace it with something else. So basically making members of Congress feel better that they wouldn't be just getting rid of these obsolete authorizations that are on the books, but saying, well, we'll just we'll replace it with something else. And from what I'm reading, it's going to focus on Iran so that there are some authorizations on the book for us to respond to uh, Iranian aggression or whatever you want to call it. And I find that highly problematic because first of all, they should be getting rid of all the AUMFs, including the 2001, uh, and not replace it with anything. If there's going to be a war or an action that we need to, to engage in, then Congress should be asked to, to authorize the use of military force for specific action, not have some blanket authorization that they can use for the next 20 years. Absolutely. Uh, giving the president uh, authority ahead of time and then giving this, this sort of open-ended authorization like has been done before uh, is, is clearly a recipe for lots of trouble. Uh, on on the, the issue of these troops being sent out on, on the ships, uh, as, as Brian Finnecane tells Al Monitor in, in their report this week, uh, he says the domestic legal basis for this is far from clear, which is a, a diplomatic hmm. way of saying that it doesn't exist. Oh, boy. I mean, there, 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 really, there really isn't anything. Uh, I'm sure that the White House would fall back on their usual excuse, like they do with their actions in Syria and Iraq, whenever they launch attacks on these uh, militia bases. They'll say, "Well, the president acted with his uh, Article Two authority," which is, you know, that's always the catch-all excuse yeah. whenever somebody wants to bomb something. Oh, the president can just order bombings uh, in self-defense. Of course, it's always self-defense. We're defending our troops, uh, and so it's it's simply defense, self-defense, and that's all we need to know. And I'm sure this would then be. Uh, for the ships in the Persian Gulf, they would probably hook up some excuse saying that uh, you know we're we're providing for the defense of these ships uh, for the you know for collective regional security or something like that. And so the, you know right. they'll, they'll always be able to find some some lame excuse. But I you know the, the the reality is there is no authority for it. It's just being done because they can essentially, and and they're confident that nobody's going to stop them. Which is basically how presidents have been getting us into wars now for uh, at least the last twelve years, uh, and then and in some cases even further back than that, uh, where where the president simply does it and and Congress won't step up and and challenge it, and the presidents realize that they will never be held accountable for it, and so they they don't worry about political backlash or overstepping their constitutional bounds. Our guest today is James Carden. He is a columnist for Globetrotter Media and a former advisor to the U.S.-Russia Bilateral Presidential Commission at the U.S. Department of State. His work has appeared in The Nation, The American Conservative, Responsible Statecraft, Unheard, The National Interest, and The Los Angeles Times, among others. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Uh, yeah, it's our pleasure. And uh, 
yeah, we were interested in uh, hearing from you uh, as we see the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, bogging down and stalling. Uh, we're we're uh, seeing a lot more coverage of that fact now uh, than we had seen uh, earlier. Uh, and you recently co-wrote a piece for Responsible Statecraft urging the U.S. to support talks to bring the fighting in Ukraine to an end in recognition that uh, the, the war is not going very well uh, for them. Uh, what could the U.S. do to persuade the Ukrainian government that the time has come to negotiate an armistice? I think it would have to be pretty extreme. I think that the U.S. would probably have to threaten to cut them off financially and militarily. I don't see that happening, unfortunately. I think that um, this thing is going to drag on. And I think that actually what we saw in Saudi Arabia uh, over the weekend um, showed that Ukraine is pretty much um, sticking with its kind of maximalist demands. Um, so I thought it was an interesting uh, peace conference to have in the absence of one of the parties to the conflict. Um, but yeah, I, I really, I, I'm very pessimistic about um, the next couple of months. I think that um, it's very likely that the Russians are going to relaunch an offensive and the violence is going to continue. Right. No, unfortunately, it does, it does look that way. And uh, we've, we've seen uh, a number of accounts talking about how the, the, the counteroffensive on the Ukrainian side uh, is running into very uh, stiff Russian defenses. I, I think there, there was a lot of maybe, uh, oh, but there, there are definitely overly optimistic assumptions going into this operation that there would be repeats of the major successes that were seen last year when a lot of uh, territory was regained and, and the Russians were pushed back uh, quite quickly. And I think there was a mistaken impression that that was going to happen again, and and that that fueled a lot of the, I guess, delusions about uh, what was going to happen. Um, uh, turning to the to the Saudi peace conference, uh, it was, as you say, it was, it was a sort of a curious peace conference because you have all of these other governments represented there, but not but not the Russians because, of course, if the Russians had attended, the Ukrainians wouldn't have attended. Uh, and, right. and so there's there's not it's not really a peace conference. It's it's just a I don't know, a talking shop, really. Uh, and, and I think it was intended as that, uh, as a way to try to drum up support for Ukraine uh, among other countries that had up until now been a bit more uh, on the fence or, or a bit unwilling to commit either way. Yeah. Um, with the uh, with that conference essentially achieving nothing, not even in terms of gaining greater support for Ukraine, uh, do you do you see any initiative coming from from anywhere in the say the, the Ukraine supporting camp for uh, say a, a, a real peace conference, one that would actually involve engaging with both parties to the conflict? No, I, I haven't seen that, and I don't see any anything in sight. Um, especially uh, what's especially worrying about that for those of us who wish that something like that were on the horizon is that um, the Europeans have basically um, followed Washington in lockstep over this. So if you look at the way Paris and Berlin acted during say the second Iraq war, um, they actually did their job um, as, as, as true friends 
to the United States. And that, and what I mean by that is like a real friend is someone who will tell you to cool it or stop when you need to be told to cool it. Right. Um, and, and they haven't done that. They've acted really more like the British have acted uh, in the past. And that's a worrying sign. Um, and, you know, with regard to the, the peace conference that occurred in Saudi Arabia, I mean, I thought it was a good sign that the Chinese attended. They, they were active and apparently by the news reports, they were constructive. Um, however, uh, you know, I fear that the Ukrainians are going to take what the Ukrainians are going to take away from that conference is that they have the encouragement of the entire world to continue to do what they've done. Um, and if you look at the so-called peace um, points that the Ukrainians put forward, I mean, they're totally unrealistic, particularly with regard to territorial sovereignty. Um, it's a terrible thing to say, but it is nevertheless true that the 20% of the country that Russia now controls is not going back to them. I just don't see that happening. I don't see how Putin could agree to something like that and survive. Um, so he would have not only a rebellion on his hands, much larger and fiercer than whatever that Wagner thing was, I, the population would turn against him on that. So um, that's a non-starter. So either, so, I mean, this basically the problem with all this is that it's leaving the Russians little choice, but to pursue their own maximalist aims. Um, and that perhaps might lead to an effort to decapitate the leadership and keep, I don't know, but there's nothing on the diplomatic front that is remotely encouraging Right. No, yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. And it, it seems like there's, there's this mentality in Washington that, that assumes that somehow uh, total victory is still in the cards. Uh, and and, and I, we saw some of this. Uh, there was a piece in foreign policy just a few days ago uh, from, from uh, some people uh, from AEI, I think, talking about the, the inevitable Ukrainian victory. And I, and I thought this or that the Ukrainians would be the inevitable victors of the war. And I thought that was just lunatic thing to say uh, under the circumstances when it's it's any not only is it not inevitable it doesn't even seem very likely uh so so how concerned are you that the, the fixation in washington on total victory uh, is, is really blinding policymakers to the realities on the ground uh to, to such an extent that it, it's really setting ukraine up for a big fall i had i hadn't seen the piece because i've stopped i stopped reading foreign policy years ago <laughs> okay i um i would say that you know, to, to their credit, um, that's a step in the right direction because a couple of weeks ago, AEI's Michael Rubin came out with a piece saying that it would be acceptable uh, to use uh, nuclear weapons in the conflict. So, oh, no. you know, baby, <laughs> baby steps, I guess. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, this is a problem that we've had. Basically, what um, the maximalists and neocons in this town um, are under the, the illusion that um, we can pursue a policy of unconditional surrender um, in this war. Um, and that's something that has kind of bedeviled American, th that concept has kind of deviled American foreign policy since the Second World War. Um, and as you know, George Kennan wrote a lot about that. Um, so no, we, we 
there, there just is no world that exists in which that's going to happen now. Um, and it's really dishonest because we, we clearly, by the admission of um, people in the Pentagon, um, are running out of ammunition and artillery to, to give the Ukrainians. Um, months ago, um, German Chancellor Scholz said the same thing. Um, you know, this, this idea, it was this past week, I think, that um, Politico, which I still have an unfortunate habit of reading, um, said that, you know, six or a dozen Ukrainian pilots have volunteered to train on, you know, F-16 fighter jets, as if that was going to, like, turn the tide of the war. You know, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's fantasy world. And all the while, um, young Ukrainian soldiers are, are dying in trenches. It's absurd. It's disgraceful. The other problem is that we don't get accurate, I don't think by a long shot, accurate estimates of uh, the casualty rate. Um, and there was a very, very good article in Compact Magazine by a very respected military uh, analyst and historian, um, Michael something. <laughs> and, uh, I think we've heard of them. <laughs> and, you know, it, but it was the first time, really, outside of a lot of the podcast world, um, in which someone really laid down the true costs um, of the war. Uh, and that's another thing, because people who, you know, people in everyday Americans who have actual, you know, who have, they have jobs, they have other things to worry about, they're not really paying attention, and they get their news from, you know, CNN, the Washington Post, the Times, they're still under the impression that Ukraine's winning this thing. And I, you hear that all the time, and it's like, whoa. Um, so, no, I mean, the war propaganda has been um, extremely effective uh, this time around. Thanks Scare for coming me. on, James. Um, I, I'd like to talk about that for a second, because inside the Beltway, the debate is quite different. You have Democrats who um, basically want to... I want to say genuflect, but they virtue signal every day about their support for Ukraine. And they're just happy that the money is flowing in one direction. They go to Kiev. They, they, they greet Zelensky. They assure him we have his back. We'll support him no matter what. And then they move on to the next issue. They don't want to really talk about it. We have Republicans who are the, are the same way. And then you have a handful of Republicans uh, your Matt Gates's, your Marjorie Taylor Greens, Rand Paul, uh, J.D. Vance, uh, maybe a, a couple others, Tom Massey, who have been vocalizing some resistance uh, to further Ukraine aid. But there really hasn't been a debate in Washington about what our strategy is, what the end game is, what the plan B is if this counteroffensive doesn't work. There seems to be just a collective um, denial of the facts, as you just pointed out, of the trajectory of this war. And what I'm afraid of is that we're facing another massive Ukraine aid package that Politico announced yesterday, or they had quoted a Biden administration saying that it was being readied, that, that Biden was confident that Congress would pass another massive aid package probably slipped into the emergency spending bill 
right before they have to vote on uh, some omnibus to keep the government going. And that seems to be the only plan in town is just throw more money at this. I mean, how frustrating is it that that the Beltway seems to be in some sort of delusional hive situation where they're just not dealing with reality, but it's actually affecting lives on the ground in Ukraine. As you point out, the destruction is every day. The casualties are every day. We're helping to destroy that country every day. And there seems to be nobody with any balls in this town to address it. Well, I think the way things are viewed in this town is that if you oppose the needless slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people, you know, you're the coward. Um, I think, you know, this is part of the reason that I think that even like a conservative figure of, let's say, 300,000 both sides, right, lost, and no one blinks an eye, is that because for 20 odd years, we've been at it. And, you know, look at the, the death toll of the forever wars in Iraq. I mean, you know, George W. Bush needlessly killed, I think the conservative estimate is something like one million people, uh, you know, due to the Iraq war and the knock on effects of the Iraq war. Um, so, you know, it's strange. Um, what's the old Daniel will know the uh, what did Stalin say about uh one being a tragedy, but uh, a million being a statistic. Yeah. Uh, that's the one yeah, I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where our governing class is. Um, you know, uh, Kelly, you said the, that Biden said he was confident about the aid package, you know, passing. I think he's exactly right. He has every reason to be confident. As you point out, opposition to this thing is really confined to a small corner mm-hmm. uh, of the Republican Party. Yeah. Um, it's and you know and then you have then there's this whole other sort of performative aspect to it as well and i'm not just talking about um all these people in washington um with the ukraine hanging the ukrainian flag on all that stuff you have someone like chris christie who's polling at below one percent in the gop primary flying to you know, Kiev to kiss Zelensky's ring and present him handwritten lyrics to a Bon Jovi song. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really bizarre. Um, I wonder though, if the good news is that the American people are starting to catch on, right? Because Kelly, you wrote about that new poll recently, which saw that opposition is beginning to is beginning to rise. So that's a good sign. The bad sign is that we're ruled by idiots. Yeah. And, you know, I'd like to point out because I don't want to be unfair. We can, we can talk about this. I don't want to be unfair. There are plenty of Democrats who honestly believe that what we need to do is to keep backing Ukraine to defend itself against the Russian invasion. They believe this as um, a moral and a humanitarian mission uh, that we are obligated to continue uh, pursuing. And so I didn't mean to demean uh, the point of view of Democratic Ukrainian supporters, because I I know, because I've been debating 
uh, with these people on on Twitter and in, in, in personally for a year and a half now that there there is some commitment on the other side. It's just I don't share it. I, I don't agree. Um, and they don't agree with us. They don't agree um, in uh, this restraint point of view um, that pursuing this war any further is actually going to be counterproductive for Ukrainians themselves and might just widen out to a broader regional conflict or worse. Um, but I do, you know, I, I do want to go back to that poll you just mentioned because CNN just released a poll. So it's not our poll. It's not a partisan poll uh, saying that um, most Americans now do not favor uh, a new congressional um, aid package or they don't want Congress to approve another aid package for Ukraine. And I think that's pretty significant because um, they do, uh, by majority, still support giving intelligence and military training to the Ukrainians, but less than 50% want to see more weapons going, and they don't want to see this aid package. So I think that, that we've re reached a threshold here at least on the part of the American people who are starting to say, not sure this is, this is really working and giving them over a hundred billion dollars in a year and a half is, is problematic if it's not working. And we're seeing the destruction of that country. We're not seeing any military gains and, Let's face it, we have our own economic issues here at home that we need to address. And $100 billion is a lot of money. So we won't even get into the oversight issues. But I, I do think Americans are getting wise. It's just that there's this huge disconnect between what they're feeling and what they're thinking and what their elected officials are doing inside of Washington. And, you know, we know that this dis disconnect has existed for a long, long time now, and it's just getting wider and wider. Um, at what point do the American people start holding their members accountable for what they're doing in their name in, in Washington? I don't know where that tipping point exists. Right. It's hard to say. I, I do. I would go back real quickly to the what you were saying about how um, liberal and democratic supporters of this war, uh, and you know their good their good faith reasons for supporting it. I I do wonder though, um, because basically the way that the war they view the war is that it began on February. Uh, it began in February 2022. Putin invaded. That's wrong. We have to support Ukraine. But this, that kind of that is that's not the beginning of the story. That's sort of like in the middle chapter. And so I wonder if they're at all familiar um, with the way the Ukrainian government was treating its very own citizens in the Donbass from 2014 to 2022. Um, you know, this is not simply a, you know, um, this isn't World War II. Um, the 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 right way to look at it really is more like a Northern Ireland sort of situation. This is a sectarian, this is more of a sectarian war. Um, you know, the, the Ukrainians claim that they want, you know, they want their land, they want, they want sovereignty over their land. That's fine. But clearly the way that they've treated 
uh, their ethnic Russian citizens, not only beginning in 2014, but for two decades. They want the land, but they don't want the people on the land. You know, um, and so there's a real heavy, heavy ethno-nationalist component to this. Uh, but we have had the, in the United States the knack in recent years of finding ourselves allied with some of the most odious um, people on the planet. Um, you know, we sided with Al Qaeda and and uh, and the radical. Um, Islamist extremists in Syria, you know, it's the very same people who are all tangled up about this thing were, they were all the, you know, we, we have the, uh, the they were the Assad must go crowd. Um, and so it's a very unthinking reflexive. Yeah. And of course they've been conditioned. Uh, these good liberals have been conditioned by uh, Russiagate and, and the alleged, uh, you know, Russian, uh, uh, overthrow of the the election or whatever whatever it was they were supposed to have done. So, I, yeah, I, there's I, a lot of do- domestic issues involved here uh, for sure. I know you know this, but I'm and I have very little sympathy for. I mean, you know, and, and I and Democrats and liberals who who think that this is some kind of crusade for uh, democracy and right. Yeah. It's funny because I think you do have a, a, um, a slice of Congress outside of the um, political cynicism that we know exists who just aren't really beefed up on foreign policy issues. And I've met these people time and time again on Capitol Hill. You know, they've entered office uh, for different reasons. They ran for office for different reasons. Their backgrounds might be in tax policy or social justice or um, you name it, um, farming, agriculture. Not every member of Congress is well read on foreign policy. And an issue like this comes up and they grab on to the talking points that feel okay to them, that the rest of the caucus is driving towards. And if it is this Manichaean good versus evil, uh, Russians bad, Ukrainians good, uh, democracies versus autocracies, that's their comfort zone. And they just like dive right into it. And it's unfortunate. I, I feel like you know, part of the reason why we do the work we do is to try to inform people <laughs> that there are other ways of thinking about these foreign policy issues. And you can be brave and you can step out of the hive or the pack and say, hmm, that doesn't that doesn't sound right to me. I think I'm going to explore, explore this differently or think about this differently. And unfortunately, we have a lot of work to do <laughs> on Capitol Hill. But I, I know you have a hard stop, so I really appreciate you coming on the show again, James. Uh, I'd love to have you on again in the future, uh, maybe to talk about more about uh, the presidential politics at some point or the elections in general and how those might be shaped by foreign policy, because I think we're entering into some really choppy waters uh, with uh, 2024 coming up and and uh, all of these loose ends in foreign policy. I don't I just don't I really don't know how it's all going to shape shape out shake out but it'd be great to talk to you more about that i'd love to well thanks for having me on good to see you good to see you too thanks good to see you thank you again for tuning into today's episode 
If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.